Our gracious Heavenly Father, we once again pause to be reminded of your glory and your holiness, that you are a God beyond anything that we can ever understand or comprehend. And yet you have made yourself known to us by faith in Jesus Christ so that we can have a relationship with you, so that we can know you. You have adopted us who are believers, who trusted in Christ to be your children so that we can address you as our Father. What a privilege. What a privilege that we can address you that way and that we can come having free access into your presence and sing these amazing songs that just extol the person and the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, our glorious Savior. Father, this morning we pray for those amongst us who are hurting physically, perhaps with sickness or some infirmity. We pray for those who are hurting spiritually as well, for those who are experiencing loneliness, depression, for those who feel far from you. Lord, may you be gracious to them today and draw them to yourself. Your word says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Father, may you move in each of our hearts to draw near to you, not because we are worthy, not because of our performance, but because of your grace, we are able to come before you, that you have shown us in Christ. Father, we also want to lift up the families who were affected this week in Saugus, 20 minutes away. Lord, we pray for your comfort. Lord, I can't even imagine losing a child that way. So, Father, we pray for your comfort and your encouragement upon those families, Lord. And I pray that you would use your church in that area of Santa Clarita and other areas to reach those people, to remind them, Lord, of the hope that is found in the person and the work of Jesus of the gospel the good news that you have made provision for people to have a right relationship with you by faith in your Son and his sacrifice. Father, may you remind them of that, Lord, through your church there. We pray that this morning, Father, you would bless our time in your word, not only in the preaching of your word, but in the application of your word. I pray that your spirit will work powerfully in our hearts. Lord, unless your spirit works in us and applies the word to our hearts, not only to expose our sin, but to also apply the balm of Christ, nothing will happen. And so we pray that your spirit would work powerfully and mightily in each of us. Father, help us to shun obstinacy and rebellion. And Lord, to be people who are convicted by our sin, so that we would repent of it, so that we would confess it, and that we would be renewed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, if you remember, we left off in Mark chapter 8, and this morning we're going to be looking at verses 22 to 26 of Mark chapter 8. And if you're able to stand with me, I want to read actually the first 26 verses of Mark chapter 8. If you're not able to physically stand, it's okay. You can follow along in your Bibles, but if you're able to stand, I want to remind us of the flow of thought of Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 26, okay? This is the Word of God. Mark 8, verse 1. In those days, when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. And his disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. 
And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve to them. And they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there. And he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread, that is, his disciples, and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, Twelve. When I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored, and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. Well, a certain tightrope walker publicized that he was going to walk across Niagara Falls. So a large crowd gathered. He dusted his hands and feet with powdered chalk, grasped with both hands the pole he used for balance, and he proceeded confidently across the rope. He not only went across, but also made a return trip. The crowd stood amazed and responded with cheers. The man proclaimed he would do it again without his pole this time. Again, he successfully went over and back. As he stepped off the rope, he returned to the crowd and said, How many of you think I can make the trip again, this time with a wheelbarrow? Some responded with confidence, while others with skepticism. But he set off on his task and completed it with the greatest of ease. He then inquired of the crowd as to whether they believed he could do the same thing with the wheelbarrow full of cement this time. This time the crowd responded with great confidence, Again, he performed his feat with unbelievable ease. Having completed these four trips successfully, he asked the spectators if they believed he could wheel a human being across the dangerous expanse. The response was unanimous. Of course he could do it. Upon the multitude's reply, he turned to a gentleman and said, All right, my friend, let's go. (laughs) And then the story leaves us hanging, okay? We don't know. Who stepped up? The story ends there. But it begs the question, right? 
What would you do if you were that particular person? What would you do? Would you take him up on it? Would you take him up on it? It reminds us, doesn't it, that you can say that you believe in something, but it's quite another story to step out and act upon what you believe in. It's quite another story, isn't it? And here in the Gospel of Mark, the disciples are going to learn this or are learning this the hard way. Our Lord's disciples will soon have to step out, beloved, and they're going to have to act on what they believe as well. Very soon, Jesus will begin to talk to them openly about his death and his resurrection. We're going to begin to see that in the next month. Very soon, Jesus, after his resurrection, will commission these disciples to be on mission to proclaim him to the world. And so the Lord knows this, that his disciples are people in process. And he's t- so he's turning up the heat, if you will, and training his disciples, because in order for his disciples to be ready for their mission, they must see him clearly. They must have an accurate picture of Christ. You see, the disciples saw Christ. They're following him for two and a half years by this time, approximately. But they needed to continue growing in their knowledge and understanding of him. And isn't that, as even Pastor Alex reminded us last week, isn't that true of us as believers as well? That we have not arrived. None of us, no matter how long you have walked with Christ this morning, how many decades even you've walked with Christ, you have not arrived. If you are a Christian, you have need to continue to grow in spiritual understanding, in spiritual perception, in spiritual vision. You have your greatest need is to know God in a greater way so that you might be sanctified. It's this issue of spiritual sight, of spiritual understanding that is a huge focus of Mark chapter 8, the passage that I just read. And I remind you, first of all, at the beginning of chapter 8, verses 1 through 10, Jesus repeats a miracle of the feeding of the 4,000. And if you remember back in Mark chapter 5, what did we see? We saw a miracle of the feeding of 5,000. That was just men. Most likely 15, as many as 15,000 people were fed by Jesus in Mark chapter 5. As many as 12,000 people perhaps were fed um, in the feeding of the, uh, here in chapter 8, verses 1 through 10 amazing miracles and those miracles were a reminder to jesus's disciples of jesus's greatness of his glory of the fact that he's able to provide for anyone and anything that he is one that is incomparable that he's unlimited in power unrivaled in authority over and over again we see that in the gospel of mark right jesus is glorious and then sandwiched in between In verses 11 through 13 is our Lord's interaction with the religious leaders where Jesus pronounces judgment on the religious leaders because of their spiritual blindness. They want a celestial sign. They want yet another sign. It isn't enough that Jesus has done everything that he's done. They want more signs. They want a heavenly sign, something greater. And Jesus, in essence, says, no more signs for you. You are spiritually blind, guiding blind people. Focus on spiritual blindness. And then in verses 14 through 21, following that, you have the Lord's gentle but forthright rebuke of his own disciples for their lack of spiritual perception and spiritual understanding. You see, because on the boat, 
They are worrying and fussing about where their next meal is going to come from. And yet they have been, I mean, they were basically waiters as Jesus distributed food, created out of nothing, continued to give to hundreds and hundreds of people food provided for everyone. And his disciples were firsthand eyewitnesses of that. And yet they are fussing and worrying about where their next meal is going to come from. And he confronts them for their own lack of spiritual perception. In layman's terms, he says to them, what's the matter with you guys? What's the matter with you? I mean, haven't you seen the miracles? Haven't you seen, in other words, my glory that I am unlimited in power and authority? There's nothing that I can do. Why are you anxious and worried about this simple provision? They lacked spiritual vision, didn't they? And so then on the heels of all of that, focus on spiritual understanding. You have this very unique miracle of the healing of this blind man in just five verses, verses 22 to 26. And this little miracle is unique for three primary reasons. First of all, it's the only miracle that appears here in Mark or only appears here in Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. Also, it's unique because of its positioning or its, its placing here in the gospel of Mark. It's, it's squeezed in this particular spot. And it seems like maybe Mark just kind of randomly chose to throw these verses in Mark here in this narrative. But upon a closer look, we'll see that this is very deliberate, right? The Word of God and everything in Scripture is deliberately placed. And then thirdly, it's unique because it's a process. It's a process. In other words, the healing of this blind man, beloved, comes in stages. It's not immediate like the other miracles that Jesus has performed over and over again in the Gospel of Mark. And so what I want us to see this morning and to walk away with as we look at this particular miracle is this. I want you and I to see as believers that we must see Jesus clearly if we are to worship Him as He is and tell others about Him. We must see Jesus clearly if we're going to worship Him as He is and tell other people in this world about Him. He who is the hope For the forgiveness of sins. This is illustrated as we look at the presentation of the miracle in verses 22 to 26. And then I want us to consider the significance of the miracle. So let's look first of all at the presentation of the miracle in verses 22 to 26. Okay? Notice the setting of the miracle in verse 22. It says that they came to a place called Bethsaida. Bethsaida. Specifically... This was one of two such places, but this is specifically Bethsaida Julius, which was on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was named Bethsaida Julius because it had been named after Julia, the daughter of Caesar Augustus. But listen, it was also significant, this particular location, because Luke chapter 9 and verse 10 indicates that this is the same location where Jesus had fed the 5,000 or really the close to approximate 15,000. And so you have this area here, this city, this small town, where people were very familiar with Jesus. He was well known in this area. After such a miracle, you would be well known. And so because he was, they were familiar with Jesus, look at verse 22. It tells us that they brought a blind man to Jesus. Blindness was a very common condition in those days. 
primarily due to the rough weather conditions and medicine not being as readily available or accessible. Many people suffered from partial or complete blindness, and there was very little to no hope for healing. So blindness was a very hopeless condition to be in. That was the physical, medical side of things for this particular individual or people in this condition. On the social side of things, as we've seen again and again to make matters worse, blind people were generally, people were generally indifferent to people in this condition. And the general opinion was that blind people were under the curse of God. Many were very superstitious, and they believed that people in various conditions or infirmities, including blind people, and maybe they had done something wrong to bring this about. And so as a result, many blind people were treated as social outcasts. They were ignored. They were treated with indifference. How many times have we not seen this, right? Lepers, paralytics, tax collectors, demoniacs, a woman with a hemorrhage, starving people, a blind person. These and many other people Jesus came to reach, says the Gospel of Mark. And we must have the same heart of compassion that Christ has. Amen? But at least this blind man, if you notice, has people who care for him and they want to help. Different than the blind man that we'll encounter later in Mark chapter 10. This man doesn't come to Jesus, but he's got friends, family, or a mixture of the two who bring him to Jesus in verse 22. And they implore Jesus to touch him. They care for this man so much that they are begging and pleading with Jesus just to touch him. And what's interesting, again, is that Bartimaeus, the other blind man in the Gospel of Mark chapter 10, he is the one that's pleading with Jesus directly. But here, it's this man's friends or family who are pleading with Jesus continually to heal this man, to help him, to just touch him. Now, here's where things get really, really interesting. Because at this point... You would think that Jesus would just heal this man instantly, right there on the spot. He certainly has the power to do this. He's done this many, many times. But listen, what's unique is that this miracle is a process. It comes in stages. Notice stage one comes in verses 23 to 24. Taking the blind man by the hand, Jesus brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything do you see anything what happened here did jesus have a power outage did jesus fail i mean it begs the question doesn't it what's going on here that it didn't work he who is unrivaled in power, did Jesus all of a sudden, this is a greater miracle than anything that he's done. And of course, we know that the answer is an absolute no, right? Of course not. There's something else going on here. There's a reason why he is doing this. But for now, notice that first he deals with this man in a very personal way. The Lord gently takes this man, if you notice in verse 23, by the hand. Now, for us, maybe that's not a big deal. Yeah, he got him by the hands. He's blind. Listen, in those days, beloved, you just didn't do that. That wasn't common for you to just touch people that way. Let alone a man touching another man that way. But Jesus does this. 
He takes this man by the hand and he's guiding him along, escorts him to a private place. It says, taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. Jesus very personally guides this man by the hand. He wants no publicity, no undistracted time with this man. And by the way, his disciples are with him. We know this because later in verse 27, we're told that Jesus went out along with his disciples. So his disciples are there, but Jesus is privately walking away with this man out of the village. Transport yourself to that day. What if you were that man? What if you had been blind? For who knows, maybe his whole lifetime, maybe he had become blind. Transport yourself to that day. Picture Jesus. Beloved, the Lord of the universe the creator of each and every one of us, gently holding this man's hand, guiding him along. Be careful. Watch your step. Don't step here. Don't step there. This is God. This is the Lord of the universe, guiding and directing and caring for this man. Talk about loving concern. Amen? Talk about care. Talk about humble condescension from he who deserves all worship, as Mark tells us, again and again and again. Because of what he's able to do that no one else can do. He deserves all worship and honor and praise and adoration. And look at what he's doing here. As I was pondering the scene, two things primarily struck me here. Obviously, Jesus is care. But how sometimes we think that we're too good to do certain things for people. That maybe certain things and certain acts of service for others who might, from our perspective, not be worthy of our time are beneath us. And yet, if we follow the example of Christ, he went to the most unworthy people, the ostracized, the social outcast of society. Wow. Wow. What also struck me was, what was the conversation like? I guess I'm kind of like nosy that way, right? One day I want to see in the hev- heavenly video again, all, get all the details and all of that and the facial expressions and all of that of, of people in these particular narratives. What kind of things must they have talked about? I mean, if you were that blind person, what would you want to talk to Jesus about? What would you say to him? Tell him your whole life story. Lord, this is how long I've been waiting for somebody. I've just given up hope and my friends and family are bringing me to you. Who knows what the conversation is like? Maybe I'm just kind of nosy that way. Hopefully you wonder about that. Well, now away from the village, look at verse 23. After spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, the Lord asked, do you see anything? Oh, If you're like me, the first time I read this account about 25 years ago, I was like, um, gross? First spitting on his eyes? What's up with that? I remember, I think it was last year, reading to my little girl, Chloe. She thinks she was six at the time. She's our special needs daughter. Reading out of the children's Bible this particular story. And I knew, obviously, the Gospel of Mark and all of that. So even though the children's Bible didn't include the spitting part, I told her about it. And she goes, icky. That's our first response, right? But then I realized 25 years ago as I was reading this narrative, Jesus doesn't have to conform to me and to my expectations of how how I think he should have done something, right? 
He can do and heal however He wishes. Also, this is not some mystical or, or superstitious way of healing here. This is the Lord's way of communicating with the man. Listen, not only what He's about to do, but also from whom the power comes. The power comes from Christ. From Christ. Verse 23 tells us then that Jesus laid his hands on him. That is, he put his hands on his eyes. He touched this man's eyes and he asked him, Do you see anything? Again, lapse of power? Is this too great? He who has cast out demons, healed lepers, paralytics, calmed storms and winds, walked on water, fed thousands of people. Surely healing a blind man like this is not beyond Jesus Christ. There's a reason. And if you notice the question, do you see anything? The question is framed in such a way that it implies that Jesus expected the man not to be healed right away. In other words, this was pre-planned. This was designed by Jesus to be a healing, a process in stages to teach a particular lesson that we're going to think about and consider in a moment. So then verse 24, after Jesus touches his eyes, it says that the man looked up. The idea is that he gained sight, but it wasn't complete. It was incomplete sight. Notice in verse 24, for the man said, I see men. For I see them like trees walking around. Most likely it's the disciples whom he sees. They appear to me like trees walking around. People appear to him like these moving shapes that he identifies as moving trees. Some say that maybe this indicates that the man was not blind his whole life. But at one point he did see. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But we know that he's seen, but not perfectly. That's stage one. Stage two comes in verse 25. Then again, Jesus laid his hands on his eyes. Here's a second touch by Jesus. And this time, notice, he looked intently. Literally, the Greek has the idea of he looked through. As in, he gave a penetrating look. Like when we rub our eyes after coming up out of the water, after we jumped in the pool, right? And we want to clear our eyes, and then we kind of open our eyes and, and see, give a penetrating look. That's the idea here. He gave a penetrating look to focus and was restored and began to see everything clearly. Now remember, this is after a second touch. This man is now fully, completely, perfectly restored to 2020 vision. Now, I don't know about you. I wear, I've been wearing glasses now for about, since about, I don't know, 2000 or 1996 or so. It's been a long time since I had 2020 vision. For some of you, it's a lot longer, decades, okay? No offense. But you, you don't even remember what it was like to see, to have 2020 vision, perfect vision. That's what this man has. Perfect vision. He's completely healed. And I'm sure he's eager to tell everybody. But as so often we see in the Gospel of Mark, notice verse 26. Jesus tells him, do not even enter the village. 
Do not even enter the village. Jesus has taken, had taken this man out of the village, away to a private place. He tells him to hold off from returning back to his village. The last thing, beloved, that Jesus wants are the fickle crowds coming after him again because they believe him to be some miracle wonder worker. Jesus wants people to believe in him because of who he is. Because they believe in him to be the son of God and the long-awaited Messiah. He's not concerned in publicity or popularity at all. And so this is the presentation of the miracle here by, but, by Mark. But it begs the question, doesn't it? Why this particular miracle in Mark? Both the placing, the positioning of the miracle, and the fact that it was a process is unique. So Why? Why is this? Why is this significant? That's our second point, the significance. Let's consider the significance of this miracle here. And obviously, like any of the other miracles that we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, the first and foremost reason why Jesus does what he does is to reveal to us and to them in that day his glory, his greatness, his power, his compassion as we've seen. To reveal who He is in His glory. And gives us a glimpse of God in human flesh. That is the first reason why this miracle in particular is significant along with all of the other miracles. And in the words of John chapter 20 and verse 31. These signs have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that believing you may have life in His name. There's an evangelistic reason for seeing the glory of Christ. That if you are not a Christian this morning, and you have not turned from your sins and put your faith in Jesus, as you behold Christ on the pages of His Word, that you would come to believe that He truly is God in human flesh, and that He went to the cross to pay for the sins of those who repent and believe in Him. I pray that you would do that this morning if you don't know Christ. You would turn from your sins and put your trust in this one. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name that has been given under heaven by which we must be saved but the name of who? Christ. Christ. So Mark reveals to us here through this miracle and all the other ones the glory of Christ that we might come to believe in Him. But especially what I want us to focus upon is this. I want you to see that this miracle is significant because this was a lesson for his disciples. You see, the Lord's disciples have spiritual sight, but they need to grow in their understanding of Christ. They need to get an accurate picture in a greater way of Jesus And this issue, like I said at the beginning, of understanding Christ, of seeing Christ for who He is, it's so evident that that is the focus in this chapter with that repeat miracle of the feeding of 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 thousands of people. And then later, the disciples audaciously are wondering where their next meal is going to come from. This was a lesson for them again. And look at what our Lord asks them in verse 17 when they ask that question. Essentially, where is our next meal going to come from? Verse 17, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not see and understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? He's not talking about physical eyes. 
He's talking about, yes, you have physical eyes, but I'm talking about spiritual perception, spiritual understanding. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? Verse 20, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? I mean, the whole context is about his disciples' failure to see him accurately, to see him clearly. And so the placing of this miracle and the process of healing serves to illustrate also their own growth in understanding, I submit to you. Jesus doesn't ask the blind man in verse 23, do you see anything? Because he's not able to heal this man because this miracle is so great. He's done more miracles than this one, even raising people from the dead in Mark chapter 5, verses 35 through 43. He's calmed winds, calmed storms, cast out powerful demons. Jesus is perfectly capable of doing any miracle here. It's a lesson for his disciples as well who are watching this. They haven't arrived. They have a basic understanding of who Jesus is. But beloved, they need to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And by way of application, this is also a lesson for us, isn't it? For us as believers, as disciples of Christ, followers of Christ, we too need to continually grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. None of you, including myself, have arrived. None of us have reached perfection. None of us see Jesus accurately and perfectly as we should. I mean, we might be tempted as we see these narratives in the Gospel of Mark to think of the disciples, what in the world is the matter with those blockheads? What is up with their hardened hearts? Why are these guys so hard-headed? Hindsight's twenty twenty, isn't it? What if a hundred years from now, should the Lord tarry, there was a story written about you and your Christian pilgrimage? What would people see about your life? How many times have you not doubted God's provision? How many times have you not questioned God's purposes in your life? How many times have you not sought other places to look for wisdom and understanding rather than coming to God? How many times have you not forgotten about his glory and how much he's revealed himself to you and how much he's provided for you physically and spiritually? What would be written of us a hundred years from now? What would be the narrative about you, Christian, and me? So this humbles us, doesn't it? That we too need our spiritual eyesight open. We need an eye wash, don't we? To see Christ clearer that we might worship him as he is and serve him. Now listen, along the way as Christians, there are certain things that blur our spiritual vision, right? What are some of those things that tend to blur our spiritual vision? I don't think anybody would raise their hand right now. Hopefully you're not, none of you are obstinate and rebellious that way. And you would say, you know what? I don't need any more spiritual sight. I see Jesus as clear as I can see him perfectly. Anybody? I don't think any of us would deny the fact that we need to grow. And we need to understand Christ in a greater way. So the question really does become, what types of things blur my spiritual vision as a believer? 
First, I think entertaining sin in our lives as believers blurs our spiritual vision. Entertaining, notice that I said entertaining sin. Not that you struggle with sin. Not that you even fall on your face and then you come back and you seek God are renewed again in, in His forgiveness for you again. Not that you struggle with sin and you desire to do what is right and you're in this process of, of wanting to put off by the Spirit of God your sin and put on Christ and pursuing Christ. I'm talking about living in known, conscious, unrepentant sin where you're entertaining sin. That blurs your spiritual vision. Living in unrepentant sin. Listen to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 6. Writing to Christians, by the way. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, and yet walk in the darkness. Present tense, habitually walk in the darkness. And darkness is a metaphor for sin. We lie and do not practice the truth. We live in sin, habitually, comfortably. We walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. If we say, hey, I'm in fellowship with the Lord, and yet I'm walking in private, secret, unrepentant sin as a believer. The warning to you is, confess your sin to the Lord. Be renewed in His forgiveness of you. And the fact that you need to remember that Jesus saved you, not just to deliver you from hell, but to also make you like Himself. He wants you to be sanctified. He wants you to become like Christ. So 1 John 1, nine. on the other hand, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the life of the Christian. Continually agreeing with God about our sin, acknowledging our sin before Him, and remembering that He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because Christ, 2,000 plus years ago, said it is finished for believers, Right? It's done. It's done. You're secure in me. 1 John chapter 2, verse 11, But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness, listen to this, has blinded his eyes. You live in sin even relationally. In irreconcilable relationships where you are in sin against someone, maybe someone in your home, maybe someone in the church. You live in unrepentant, known sin that way. How can you say that you are walking in a way that glorifies God as a Christian? Beloved, sin in all its forms blurs our spiritual vision, perception, Private sins, secret sins, public or open sins. This could be personal sins, relational sins committed against others in your home, parents to children, children to parents, spouses toward one another, living in sin and yet professing to know Christ. You cannot expect to know Christ in a greater way when you are walking in sin that way. And you're comfortable there. Again, we're not talking about the common struggles of every believer. None of us are perfected. Sanctification is a process whereby we are continually being conformed to the image of Christ. But God, beloved, in the power of the Spirit, by His grace, expects us to pursue being like Jesus. Amen? Entertaining sin blurs our spiritual 
vision. Secondly, spiritual laziness blurs our spiritual vision. Spiritual laziness, passivity, lethargy blurs your spiritual vision, Christian. The absence of an active and diligent pursuit of Christ. Sanctification on the practical level is a two-front battle, isn't it? Fleeing sin and pursuing Christ. Fleeing, putting off dirty, filthy clothing, i.e. sin, and putting on continually Christ. Amen? Practically speaking. It's a two-front battle. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7. It says, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You know that word for discipline there in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7? It's the Greek word gumnazo. Gumnazo, from which we get our English word, what? Gymnasium. Gymnasium. And let me ask you, what happens in a gymnasium? Are people pretty comfortable? Kind of sitting around, having a couple of pizzas or something? What happens in a gymnasium? Rigor. Hard work. Yelling and screaming because of the pain and the tearing of muscles. Pain happens in a gymnasium, right? Pain. For some of us, more pain than others, including me. Hard work, sweat, rigor. In the same way, growing spiritually, beloved, is hard work. Amen? You guys saying amen to that? Man, every day. My flesh doesn't naturally run towards wanting to be spiritually disciplined. Are you like me? Our flesh doesn't naturally run towards wanting to read the Word and study the Word and apply the Word. Not every day at least. Most days, yes. Not every day. And yet, God sanctifies us through daily saturation of His Word. Every day. Our flesh doesn't naturally want you, Christian, to go to God, your Heavenly Father, if you are in Christ, privately communing with Him in prayer. Your, that's the last thing your flesh wants. Last thing. He certainly doesn't want you praying with other believers, being in small groups or communally praying with others, and yet prayer grants spiritual vision. Amen? Prayer grants perspective. People ask, does prayer change anything if God is sovereign? Well, why would he even pray? Absolutely prayer changes things. God uses prayer as a means under the umbrella of his sovereignty to carry out his purposes. Otherwise, he wouldn't command us to pray. And you know who prayer changes the most? You and me. Our perspective has changed. All of a sudden, our, our mind, our thinking is cleared up when we come to God and we're reminded in that, those moments of deep and profound prayer, even when it's difficult, of His Scriptures and His promises and His faithfulness and all of those things. And then you walk away and you think, why was I even anxious about that? What's the matter with me? Prayer changes us, beloved. Prayer changes us. That's why we must be diligent, not spiritually lazy. 
Our brother Alex reminded us last week of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1.18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be what? Enlightened. Paul prays for spiritual perception for those Ephesian believers. That they would see and understand and comprehend the love of God in Christ Jesus. He prays later again in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 18 that they, that they may be able to comprehend the love of Christ that is beyond comprehension. Why was it so important for them to open their spiritual eyes so that they might see God's blessings? Because Ephesians chapter 4 through 6 If you understand the blessings that you have in Christ Jesus, then you will walk worthy of your calling. First come the indicatives, your position, your identity in Jesus Christ, and upon the shoulders of those blessings of Christ, what he's accomplished and his merits, you, believer, now can walk, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? Chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians. You will walk in unity. You will be involved in the church, being equipped, using your spiritual gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. Chapter 4, verses 17 through following, you will walk not like the world because you've learned Christ differently. You're going to walk like Christ now, following after him, seeking to be like him, putting off sin, putting on Christ, righteousness, uh, practically speaking. You will walk in love towards one another. Husbands will love their wives as Christ loves the church. Wives will lovingly, voluntarily, willingly submit themselves under their husbands. Why? Because chapters 1 through 3, God has given you all of these amazing things. He's called you in and through the person of Jesus Christ. He has shown this profound love toward you. How can you not then love your spouse or your brother or sister in Christ or the non-believer? You see why spiritual perception is so important? And why we must pray and be diligent and not be spiritually lazy? And some of us are. Why am I this way? Why am I always struggling? Why is this and why is that? Listen to me. Are you in the Word? Are you getting into the Word? I'm not talking about clocking in and out in a robotic, mechanical fashion. I'm not talking about the fact that you open up the Bible because somehow God needs you to do that so that he might love you more. No, you're doing it because you love God out of gratitude for him. You're going to his word because you want to know God. You cherish and treasure him and you long to be obedient because of everything that he's done for you in the person and the work of his son. So spiritual laziness blurs our spiritual vision, but an active pursuit of Christ, by God's grace, leads to holiness as the power of the Spirit of God works through the sword of the Spirit to apply the Word to our lives. Amen? Third, love for the world blurs our spiritual vision. Love for the world blurs our spiritual vision. This is why Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 commands us, do not be conformed, Christian, do not be conformed to this world, but... Contrast, be transformed, metamorpho, be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Where does that, how does that come about? Getting into the word where the mind of Christ is revealed, right? The scriptures, God's holy scriptures reveal the mind of Christ. We need to get into the word that we might be transformed as the spirit of God applies the word to our hearts and lives. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
1 John 2.15, do not love the world, Christian, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Beloved, we live in the world, but we are called not to be of the world in the sense that we adopt the world's thinking, the world's values, and all of those things. Such things like marriage being anything but between one man and one woman. Are you buying into a hostile, rebellious culture against God's divine design for, the, for marriage that way? Are you drinking the Kool-Aid of our culture? Listen to me. Before there was government, before there were any social constructs, any structures of society, God in Genesis chapter 2 brought about the first marriage. He's creator. We are creatures. We follow his orders for what marriage consists of. One man, one woman. We don't buy into a culture that flies in the face of what God has said. And for us to do that is for us to be conformed to this world's ideas and thinking. That is not to be the case for us as believers. We are not to believe that you can live together without being married and that that constitutes a marriage because after all, what is marriage before the government but just a piece of paper and a certificate? I had somebody recently just tell me that. Not from this church. It's just a certificate. Why does it matter? As long as we're living together, we're already functioning like a married couple. And I said, no, marriage is a covenant. A covenant before God, in the presence of God, not just some piece of paper. Before the government came and the state of California and all those laws or whatever... The undermining of marriage, God in Genesis chapter 2 married Adam and Eve, right? Covenant. Before God, that is what marriage is. And so if you are living together, and you profess to know Christ, listen to me, you're in sin. You need to repent of that sin. You need to confess it to the Lord. And there's absolute forgiveness if you're a believer and you're broken over that and you come before the Lord and say, Lord, I don't want to live this way. I don't want to unite myself to somebody who, who is not in Christ. I don't want to live as a married couple when I'm not married with that other person. That is sexual immorality. God condemns sexual immorality. But can I remind you, there is the balm of Christ. There is forgiveness found in Christ. The only unforgivable sin is the rejection of Jesus Christ as a provision for the forgiveness of our sins, right? That's it. Some of us believe and are being conformed to the world, believing that it's all about the American dream. And we make it virtuous. It's like, hey, I'm just a hard worker. I'm just trying to provide for my family. Listen to me. Work is a good thing. It's a before-the-fall thing. But there are Christians who consume themselves with the American dream, possessions, money, all of these things. I want financial security. We look at our materialistic society. We look at the, the, everything that's being promoted in our society as that which will achieve you happiness. And you spend your whole life as a workaholic, never involved with your family, never, ever, ever serving in the church. Let me tell you... It doesn't matter how hard of a worker you are. If you elevate earthly things above the kingdom of God, you're in sin as well. And work has become an idol for you. Amen? Come on now. 
Jesus said, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. Are you saying you don't have to do hard work? Absolutely. God provides through our hard work, right? But you should not have those things as idols. Sometimes what we define as needs are really wants. Wants. Just conforming to the world, buying into the lies that it's all. Happiness is found in the American dream. Houses, cars, whatever. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't love the world for it will blur your spiritual vision, Christian. Finally, and there are many others, isolationism blurs our spiritual vision. Isolationism, beloved, blurs your spiritual vision and my spiritual vision. This is why Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 calls Christians to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Hear me. Isolationism for the believer leads to you shriveling up subtly and imperceptibly in a spiritual way. You cannot be everything that God has called you to be if you are disconnected, detached, unfaithful to his first love, his bride, the bride of Christ, the church. The church is God's precious greenhouse for you to grow spiritually and develop as a believer. And when you are living isolated, you lose spiritual perception and you remove yourself from under the umbrella of God's uh, sanctifying grace. And so commitment to his church is absolutely essential. It is a non-negotiable for believers. You are spiritually, if you are a genuine believer, you have been spiritually put into the body of Christ. You are a finger, if you will, in the body of Christ. What happens when that finger is chopped off? Does it hurt? Yes. You will hurt and others will hurt in ways that you don't even know. We need to function, to live connected to the body of Christ. And more and more people are running away from God's primary a context greenhouse for growth, the church. Many people are becoming more and more not committed to the church. That's why we did a whole series this summer on the importance of the nature of the church and the importance of you being plugged into a local church. Who cares if you do it here at Calvary? Go find a Bible-believing, spiritual shepherd-led church where you're being challenged to live out discipleship, obediently walking to the Lord out of gratitude and love for what he's done for you. Go find that church, plug in, get connected, even if it's not Calvary. You hear me? We need this, beloved. Isolationism blurs your spiritual vision. Don't lie to yourself. Don't be deceived. None of us were even created to be isolated from other people. We have a triune, tri-personal God who created us in his image to be relational beings. We need other people. Sin and the fall has blurred the fact that we need other people. And when you come to know Christ, you're putting off the selfish sin of naturally wanting to be isolated, to be independent-minded. It's all about you. Life is all about you and you're self-centered. No, you're putting that off and you're following the pattern of Christ. He who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Isolationism blurs our spiritual 
vision. All of these, entertaining sin, spiritual laziness, love for the world, isolationism, all of those lead to stunted growth in our lives. And so listen, this little but powerful miracle was a lesson for Jesus' disciples that they needed to see him clearly if they were to worship him and they were to be compelled to be on mission for him very soon, take the baton from their Lord. They needed to see him clearly. And our commitment by God's grace, beloved, must be to see Jesus clearly if we're going to worship him as he is and we're going to be on mission here on this earth. May God give us the grace to do that. Amen? The more that you and I, beloved, are captivated by the glory of Christ, gripped by his glory, the more we are compelled to praise and proclaim him to the world. Right? If you're not gripped by him, captivated by him, you're not going to share the gospel with people. You're not going to tell other people about his greatness if you're not gripped by his glory yourself. And so pray to that end. We need to be praying for us as a church, for one another, that we would be captivated and gripped by the glory of Christ. Amen? Stand put right after our prayer as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, okay? Let's pray. Father, the more that we are compelled the more that we are captivated by your Son, the more that we are compelled to praise and to proclaim Him. Father, help us to be people who don't have blurred spiritual vision, but who see Christ as He is. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.